Well, today uh, is certainly a special day. As we mentioned, setting apart Kyle, our brother Kyle, our co-laborer in the faith, yoke fellow in the faith, uh, setting apart Kyle for gospel ministry, for pastoral ministry in the local church. We're going to go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, and um, as we're going there, I want to I tell you about a writer, uh, Whitmer. Uh, his last name is Whitmer. He speaks to the issue of pastoral ministry in our day and makes the argument and persuasively that people in our day, our society to be specifically, are very poorly shepherded generally speaking, very poorly shepherded. If you think about the way the church functions, generally speaking, there are a lot of people that come and go. There are a lot of people that uh, slip through the cracks. A lot of people that never receive the ministry of the church in its fullness, especially the ministry of pastor in its fullness. They never know a shepherd that will know them. They never know a shepherd that will pray for them in specific ways, that will be there for them in various ways. They never receive a meaningful, intimate kind of relationship with their pastor. And he argues that based on the words that Jesus said in Matthew 9, this is, uh, you you recall, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He actually, in the context of of recognizing that there are so many people who who need him, so many people who need direction, he says to his disciples, he looks upon the crowd, he says, after having compassion for them, he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And so Whitmer points to this and says, Is this not the condition of our society, even with churches, as we may say in the South, on every corner, Memphis being the the greater Memphis area, being the the land of 3,000 churches, there's still a lack of pastoral ministry. He emphasizes the knowing, the feeding, the leading, and the protecting that is given to a pastor in his ministry. Now we go to 1 Peter 5 and we get a glimpse of what Peter encourages the elders or pastors in this day. To give you a bit of context, chapter 1 and verses 1, 2, uh, it talks about how Peter is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So in this day, persecution has driven the church uh, apart. It's disrupted their lives there because of their faith in Jesus. Things in their life are not going like they thought it would. In every way, they've been scattered. So Peter is in the process through this letter, First Peter, of reminding the people of God of their holy calling, the fact that they are unique people called together to be a, uh, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, he says, a people for God's own possession. So this unique redeemed people still has a responsibility in society. And he continues to talk about how 
Christians are to submit, that's a key word, to be subject to government. He talks about uh, relationship in the home, husbands and wives, and the submission therein. He finally talks about suffering, suffering for the sake of righteousness, uh, being able to give an answer to all those that need an answer, that seek an answer. And then in this chapter 5, he turns to the importance of church relationships. The church was able to hold people together and continue these teachings under the leadership of qualified pastor elders. I'm going to explain these terms in just a moment. But look for these three key words here. As I read this text, elder, shepherd, oversight. Elder, shepherd, oversight. Here's what 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5 says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we do need your help through the ministry of the Spirit to enlighten the text today that we may see what your design is for the church and be blessed by it and be all the more excited to participate in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you who's writing here. Peter. Peter, this is is the same Peter who we often joke about, you know, tripping over his own words and uh, sticking his foot in his mouth. And you may remember one specific occasion John 21, this Peter is the one who encountered Jesus, and Jesus said, tend my lambs. And then having to say it again, shepherd my sheep. And then he goes back to the phrase, tend my lambs. You remember Peter and his, I guess, denseness, his thick skull did not quite get all that Jesus was saying there as far as Peter's love for Jesus. No matter what, what we see here, probably some 30-odd years later, Peter is still caring for the sheep and the shepherds. So we get a glimpse into these letters from Peter and the way that he cared for them, the way that he cared for leaders and the people in the churches in Asia Minor. Our theme for today, God gives pastors to the church to ensure God's people receive sufficient care. I think I say it differently up there. God gives pastors to the church to ensure the sufficient care of God's people. God gives pastors to the church to ensure the sufficient care of God's people. As we read right here in this text, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter is addressing elders eye to eye, okay? 
level. Peter is not, he's not declaring that he is special and so he gets to tell the elders what to do. But he's saying, I'm just like one of you. Here is what we have been called to do. So he addresses the elders and then he addresses the members of the church and primarily their responsibility to elders, to pastors. I believe from this we can draw our two charges for today. This is typical the way we, uh, way we have done traditionally in the Baptist church and in other uh, traditions. We often, when we ordain somebody either for the, the pastoral ministry or the deacon ministry, there's a charge given to the candidate and then there's a charge given to the church. And so that's how we're framing this today. Two charges. First, a charge to the shepherd, and that is shepherd the flock. I'm going to do my best not to point to uh, Kyle specifically in my words, and I hope that you'll be able to pick up on some of these things from our text that Kyle already does, and then maybe some of the things that Kyle is going to grow in, okay? You'll be able to see Kyle's ministry really has already been pastoral in many ways. But again, I don't want to make this sermon about Kyle. I want it to be about Jesus and his bride. The first charge is shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This testifies, you can see, to the universal church and the local church that the people of God are spread far and wide, but they are manifested in local congregations. So the universal church is not something that we can point to and say, hey, look over there and see the universal church. No, it is the local church that gives a visibility that manifests the universal church. So, so Peter is writing to these elders to say, hey, there are saints among you. There are uh, people who represent that big C church, the bride of Christ among you in your local church, and you are to shepherd them well. Now, this shepherding, this is why we prefer, I think, generally as Baptists, we use the word pastor. Because pastor is derived from the word uh, shepherd, and it encompasses so much of what is given to a pastor as responsibility. So when we say shepherd the flock, and as Peter uses it here, there is so much that's wrapped up into shepherding the flock. He certainly doesn't go into all the details here. This is what Phil Newton argues. He says, Peter has no need to list every shepherding detail. These early elders understood Jesus was their model for shepherding. And hear this, just a snippet of what's required or expected. Pursuing wandering sheep, showing compassion, teaching the scriptures, feeding and providing for the needy, healing the broken, nurturing the lambs with tenderness, calling his own by Name and laying down his life for the sheep. This is what Jesus does and is reflected in this shepherding that a pastor does. He continues here, exercising oversight. So now, so far, we have covered all three words that the New Testament uses to uh, set apart the office of pastor. So when we read the scriptures... If you read pastor, elder, overseer, all of these refer to the same office. 
And as you can see right here, Peter uses all three words and makes no distinction between the three. In fact, he ties them all to the pastoral ministry. So pastor is where we get our word shepherd. Shepherd. Elder is where we get the word um, uh, presbytery, okay? Elder, presbytery. And then overseer is the word episkopos. So all these refer to the office and function of pastor throughout the New Testament. And you may be surprised to know that pastor is the least used word in the New Testament to refer to the office. In fact, the word for shepherd is used 18 times in the New Testament, and it can be argued that maybe one or two of those occasions refer to the office of pastor. So Peter puts these all together right here in describing the charge that is given to shepherd flock. And as he proceeds, you'll see that there is a negative and a positive assignment with each way he describes it. He gives three descriptions here of motive. Three descriptions of motive. And maybe we could ask the question, why motives? Why motives? It's because motives are not easily seen or known. Because motives, right motives for the shepherd, for the pastor, Guard the pastor's responsibility before God. So there is something about pastoral ministry that happens sort of secretly. You know, there are many men who can stand up and preach well, and they will preach uh, in amazing ways and maybe even impressive ways. And there are many men who can care and show up for visits and thank God for that kind of ministry. I'll be honest with you, when I make visits, as much as I've been taught about visiting, I still go into a visit and I think, man, what in the world am I going to say? I don't have the words. <laughs> I don't know what to, to do to, to really help in this situation. But every time I'm reminded to lean on the Spirit, to know what to say. Maybe some of y'all can think of occasions where maybe I didn't say quite the right thing. <laughs> Thank you for your forgiveness. That's all I'll say right there. Motives, because this is what guards the pastor's responsibility before God. So he gives three motives here, three descriptions of motive. First off, you have to shepherd the flock, not compulsory, but willingly. Compulsion here identifies external constraint. So the pastor can't operate as if he's some kind of draftee, like military, as Hebert states. I recall when I first started working, I was 14, and I began to work with a, a man that was in the same church as my family. And he, was a, he had a fence company, and so a lot of what I did was build fences, but um, honestly, because... He needed somebody to do the things he couldn't do at his house often. I would end up sitting on the mower and running the weed eater, among other things. He had about four acres, and so some of my responsibility working for him was taking care of his yard. And I recall some of the days he'd give me a list of things to do, and on the list almost always, I think he did it on purpose because he knew I hated it, was weeding his flower beds. 
So in some sense, I got drafted to do these things. You put me on a mower, man, I can enjoy it. I can clear my head. I'm just cutting that grass. And you all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's like, I know Morris knows what I'm talking about. You get on that mower, and it's like all the cares of the world fall away. And in this case, I was getting paid to do it. Yet, when he put weeding on there, I had been sort of drafted into that responsibility. I always moved that to the bottom of the list. And oftentimes, it didn't get done because I didn't want to do it. I hated it. I was bound to that responsibility as somebody who had been given that responsibility. Yet, when Peter writes about the pastoral ministry, he says you can't be motivated by compulsion. You can't feel like like you are simply bound to do this. There must be a desire there. And we can say that there's two sides of pastoral ministry in terms of willingness and and compulsion. We see a lot in the scriptures about the desire of a pastor, also what we tend to to term the calling of a pastor. That compulsion may be more identified with the calling. And compulsion is not a bad thing all the time. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So there is a sense in which pastors, they can't escape what God has laid upon them, what God has called them to do. I know it's kind of a trendy thing when I was called to ministry uh, to say things like, well, I just realized, you know, I couldn't do anything else. And all throughout my early days and all throughout my ministry, I've heard over and over again, uh, young men who aspire or desire the office of pastor, they've been told over and over again, and I've said it, if you can do anything else, go do it. If you can do anything else, go do it. So there is a side of compulsion that's not always a bad thing, but there's also a desire that's necessary. If you don't have this desire, this aspiration, as 1 Timothy 3, 1 tells us, then something is missing and you will undoubtedly operate as a pastor under compulsion. 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there is a calling. There is a desire as well. But Peter is wanting his elders, fellow elders, to be careful. Don't let something constrain you that shouldn't constrain you. He says, as God would have you. In short, look to Jesus' example. In John 4, 31 to 34, the disciples were with Jesus. You recall John 4, the uh, woman at the well, following this, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. They say to him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
You see, Jesus had the desire to fulfill his father's ministry. And as he patterns for us, elders, pastors, we must fulfill that responsibility in the same way. So not compulsory, but willingly. He gives a second description here, not greedily, but eagerly. Not greedily, but eagerly. There's a clear teaching in Scripture that pastors get paid for what they do, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. The Bible indicates a double honor for those. And this is all built on the teaching of Jesus that the worker deserves his wages, which is reminiscent of the Old Testament instruction. And Paul ties this together for Timothy when he says, do not muzzle an ox while it's working. So, in short, the New Testament teaching on pastoral, I guess, uh, benefits or material benefits to withhold the blessings due to a pastor would be equivalent to binding them to the point that they might not be able to fulfill their calling, to fulfill their ministry. And so, Peter here, recognizing these things, also recognizes that there may be a temptation. And in fact, there is a constant temptation for pastors to turn their motive away from their calling, their willingness toward the the tangible benefits. So the caution is obvious. Material gain cannot be motivation for the pastor. And when it is, the church always suffers. And so we see this in various different ways. And we will reiterate this today for our circumstances. We often see in our church culture, our affluent culture, there are some pastors who get paid a lot of money. And you know what? If this church ain't paying enough money, there's always another church. So we see that there is a, there is a greedy way of climbing the ministry ladder. And you know who suffers? The church. Greed also damages individual sheep. Maybe you can recall conversations with people who they have had so many experiences with this or that kind of pastor and they've seen it on TV and they've seen corruption to where they are done with pastors. Pastors only manipulate. Pastors only are money hungry. And that's it. I'm never going back to church. You've heard that. I know you've heard that. Do you see how greed damages the sheep? We also see greed mocks God's gospel. Greed mocks God's gospel. There's something, I guess, uh, hypocritical about proclaiming a gospel that is a gospel of grace that is a gospel of selflessness, that is a gospel of proclaiming um, God's goodness to those in need and saying that he has everything you need. And then the pastor lives his life for material wealth, for material blessings. It mocks God's gospel. 
there are other subtle ways that greed creeps in. It may not be obvious, but there are times when ministry for a pastor just becomes a job. The pastor becomes a hireling. He's just here to sort of do this and that. These are your responsibilities. And you know what happens then? When the pastor sees himself as just a hireling, he fails to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. He caters to the influential crowd, the rich crowd, the pick your crowd. He stops addressing sin. All these things happen and it damages the flock. In our culture, with some of these other things, there is a constant temptation for pastors to seek popularity and to seek social influence. I'm truly amazed at the ways that pastors will self-promote on social media. Shameless, shameless self-promotion. Here, follow me. I will tell you all the wise and good things. That's, oh man, nothing more contrary to the person, the humility of Jesus than this. These are ways, these are ways that greed finds its way in to pastoral ministry and sucks the life out of it. All of these happen at the expense of the flock. So Peter says, you must fulfill your ministry eagerly. That is, with inward delight, without regard for pastoral, or excuse me, personal advancement or pastoral advancement, because we are not professionals. You know, I keep up with sports pretty well, and we often see, maybe you see some of those guys that are getting a little older playing ball, and it doesn't take long, five, ten years, a lot of them. They haven't put out the production in recent years that they did in their first years, and, and you know, you hear them say things like, I'll take the minimum contract, I just want to continue to play this sport that I love. And finally, we get to see them sort of humbled humbled to the place that they'll admit they aren't what they once were. You know, Peter says pastoral ministry has a start right there. Pastoral ministry has to begin with the willingness to take the, the worst contract without regard to pay. When the pastor begins, he must have settled the fact that this does not depend on compensation. No matter what, I will do the work of the Lord, the work he's called me to do. Brownson writes, it makes a great deal of difference whether a man has the spirit of a hireling or the spirit of a shepherd. Not greedily, but eagerly. And then thirdly, not tyrannically, but exemplary. Not tyrannically, but exemplary. A writer, Hebert, depicts the temptation to tyranny as a heavy-handed use of authority for personal aggrandizement that manifests itself in the desire to dominate accompanied by a haughty demand for compliance. This is, this is the tyranny of a poor shepherd. 
I believe there are two aspects of God's design for the church that actually guard against this better than anything else. First, God designed the church to have the highest local authority, not the pastor. This is why we as Baptists have uh, gathered together and agreed to make various decisions in a democratic fashion. So whether it's through a formal meeting, I would argue that every church has some sort of democratic fashion involved in it. Whether it's a formal meeting or general consensus or people voting, as you may have heard, with their wallets and their feet, pastors are held accountable by the congregation. And the congregation is the highest local authority. The church submitted to the word of God, dependent on the Holy Spirit, will discern the will of God. This is God's design. Secondly, I would argue God designed the church to benefit from multiple shepherds. Not just one human leader. And so I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the more qualified pastor, elders, paid or unpaid by the church that the church has, the better each of the church's members receives pastoral care. I become more and more convinced of this as I have continued to pastor Cedarview for the past six years. By the way, this past week we celebrated uh, six years of being at Cedarview, and it has been a delight. I lo- love you folks, and I'm thankful for you. But I'm more and more convinced of this. For several years now, I've told you, I've told you folks, some of you have heard me say these words, I don't have the capacity to care for in intimate ways, meaningful ways, knowing, leading, feeding, protecting ways, 75 people. That's more than I can handle. And so I have requested, and we have moved this way for years, and you know that we are going to be better off with another pastor. Here's how it works, though. It works both ways. Not only will you receive the care that you need, but the pastor receives the correction, oftentimes, that he needs. If a hint of tyranny rises up, a pastor ought to be kept in check by his fellow elders, his fellow pastors. What do we typically see? A pastor tyrant carries out his desires in the life of the church, and you've heard everybody and their brother gossip about it, and he gets fired only to go to another church and damage another flock. But what if there were other elders involved that before he began his tyranny, they said, whoa, hold up, brother. I'm not so sure that this is a good way to go. Or here's the way we can help shape this for the good of the church. What happens if those elders are preemptively involved in his growth as a pastor? I have prayed since early days at Cedarview that God would send us another pastor, and he has, in maybe somewhat of an unlikely kind of way. And I'm thankful for the answered prayer. Even beyond this, 
Any hint of a tyrant mentality will make enemies where there are none. I get to listen to pastors talk. I get to hear what they are paranoid about. I get to hear what they're wrestling with in their own minds about church members, about church business. If the tyrant mentality continues, it will water all the seeds of distrust and grow invasive vines of division between the shepherds and the sheep. He says, don't do this domineering, not tyrannically, but he says exemplary. The word here is type. So being an example to the flock. The word is, is type. Just like a, a coin is imprinted with the image of the stamp, the impression a pastor leaves upon the flock is one of significant, lasting impact. This is the exact counsel that Paul gives to Timothy when he writes, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Imprint your life upon them by the way that you live. And he says, here's how you do it. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 1 Timothy 4.12. So this is not some generally good example, but it is the example of Christ. According to Cook, each elder must stand out as a distinct representative of the unseen master to whom he and his people must be conformed. But when it's all said and done, the pastor elder is one of the sheep too. He's one of the sheep too. Only temporarily entrusted with the task of modeling Christ's care for the sheep. And there is a reward, verse 4, Christ is coming again. And the pastor will receive that special reward, unfading crown of glory for faithfully shepherding the flock of God. This is the charge that Peter gives to the elders, to the pastors, and now he turns his attention to the saints, the church members. So the second charge for you, very simply, follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. The command is to be subject A command already given in various contexts, in marriage, as we said, in society, and it should be understood in a similar way. There are means to line up under. To line up under. Yesterday evening, we got home, and uh, Aaron and the kids started uh, putting out some, some plants, some flowers and whatnot, because we've had some that died this past year. Um... That's no shade on Erin, by the way. Uh, she takes care of our flowers far more than I do. But I got to looking, and I was like, hey, is, is, there, is there a pattern? Is there, is there, like, symmetry here? Are we trying to match this with this over here? And in my mind, when you set out plants and set out flowers, you're not just sort of willy-nilly, hey, I'll put this one here and this one here. And you have a, a vision in mind for how it all fits together and how it all looks. Maybe if you do a, a, a garden of sorts and you grow vegetables, you understand that there is a system to putting those things out. Lines, literally. You're looking for a logical way to plant. Likewise, 
there is structure and reason behind how we are organized in relation to one another. Roles have been given by God for the good of the marriage, for the good of society as a whole, and then for the good of the church. Now, he says right here, and this may be puzzling to you, likewise, you who are younger, literally could be younger men, be subject to the elders, young men. Now, we've got to be careful here because you can't see young men as only a segment of the congregation. As uh, MacArthur writes, uh, there may be some reason that the word is used beyond what I'm convinced of, that maybe young men were more likely to buck the authority or leadership of the pastors and say, ah, we're not doing what you say. Maybe they're more likely to do that. I, I don't know. I don't know that you could argue that from the text either. We can't take this as just a segment of the congregation, but as representative of the congregation, as the context really describes. In fact, many commentators say young men is a phrase used in other places to refer to the whole congregation. Furthermore, young men should neither be understood as an exclusive reference to age. Here's the biblical argument that I would make. The verse we just read, 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul counsels Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you are young. But wait, so are people who are older than us not supposed to submit to the pastor if he's younger? No, no, no. In fact, the way that Paul counsels Timothy is to say these people are following you but he also says you need to relate to those older men, older women in specific ways. Rebuke an older man, he says, as you would rebuke your own father. Patiently, graciously, carefully. So we see young men is understood better in reference to the general congregation. What should we say of the numerous pastors of much older congregations? We can sum this all up to say, as Alfred argues, younger means the rest of the church and is used as a contrast to elder. That is the office and people not in the office. The office of pastor and the congregation, the saints in the church. If you have any question about this particular reference, I would encourage you with these other ones, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then Hebrews 13, 17, which I have on the screen, expands the same idea we see in 1 Peter 5. The writer of Hebrews is giving his closing remarks and he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, 
for that would be of no advantage to you. This is one of the most interesting passages to me in regard to the life of the church. A lot of people don't realize it. Maybe they don't. They simply don't know. But when a pastor becomes a pastor, he is at that point responsible for far more than himself or his family. This text indicates that to some degree, a pastor will have to stand before God and give account for the way that his church members live. This is significant. You'll find pastors far and wide that do not give a rip about that responsibility. They'll be glad to preach to you. They'll be glad to come to the hospital, but they do not care for your holiness. They do not care for your growth. And it is shameful. It is shameful. I promise you that for myself and anybody we ever ordain as a church, they will not take this verse lightly. We will have to give an account. In these verses, 1 Peter 5, we see this relationship unfolding between the pastor and the people. We see this relationship that is mutually good for the church. We see the church actually affirming pastors in their roles, appointing them to the office in a way that acknowledges that there is spiritual maturity, elder. There is spiritual maturity that is becoming of the position, becoming of the person of Christ, reflective of the character of Christ. The pastor carries out his calling willingly, eagerly, and in ways worthy of imitation. You see that final verse. The close of it, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As we conclude, this reminds us of the Jesus who did everything his father expected. Everything his father commanded. Whether you're a pastor or a church member, your fixation is the same. We must keep in view the one who did not seek his own, the one from eternity who laid aside his privileges in order to redeem and perfect the people formerly dashed to pieces by their sin. And your faith is squarely fixed upon Christ. You never see the church as something you've been given or God's will as something You must enforce, but you gladly link arms with your brothers and sisters, laboring in the kingdom, laboring for one another's good, loving with every ounce of who we are, the people that God has redeemed by the blood of his son. It is the pastor's joy to shepherd the flock. And I pray It's the congregation's joy to follow their leaders. Maybe today in response, uh, you might be one that just confesses, hey, I am completely unaware of what the Bible says about pastoral ministry. Uh, And maybe I've had wrong views about it. 
Maybe they've had wrong views about my role in the church. Maybe there's a time for you to confess these things, reform your understanding today. Maybe there are ways that uh, you have misunderstood the truth of the gospel, and today you realize, hey, the church is here to show me what Christ did. The church is here to help me understand how he died, he rose again. The church is here to call me to that place. And maybe you would respond today and say that up until now, you've not been a follower of Jesus, but you would like to be. The Bible says repent of sin, believe on him, trust him, and you will be saved. Let's respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Pray with me.